Hello, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome to the UI Breakfast Podcast. I'm your host, Jane Portman, and today we invite you to listen to another episode of Better Done Than Perfect. If you enjoy listening, please head over to useless.com slash podcast for detailed recaps, show notes, and more episodes like this. This show is brought to you by Userlist, the best way for SaaS founders to send onboarding emails, segment your users based on events, and see where your customers get stuck in the product. Start your free trial today at userlist.com. Hey, Alex. Hey, Jane. It's so good to be spending some time with you today. We're absolutely excited. You know, if there was... Anyone who could tell us anything about info products, that'd be definitely you. So we're excited. We're very, very thrilled. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. Excited to share what we've got for with your listeners. So before we get started, tell us more about that, you know, media empire that you have built together with uh, Amy Hoy. It's called uh, Stacking the Bricks these days and was 30 by 500 early on. So what is that? How does it work? Yeah, so... My business partner, Amy Hoy, and I come from different business backgrounds, but shared business philosophy. Amy and her husband and business partner have a small software company where they built a couple of software as a service products. The best known is called NOCO. It's a business time tracking software, uh, but they also have a very popular tool called Every Time Zone for noticing the times that the rest of your team is on, especially useful with more and more distributed teams and a number of other small software products. My background is actually more in a brick and mortar business. While I come from technology, I created one of the first co-working spaces here in the US. But our common philosophy of business is sort of the opposite of what a lot of folks talk about in the software and startup world, You know, coming up with a great idea and going out and validating it. We independently took the approach of finding audiences that we were already in some way connected to, had relationships in, sort of deeply studying and understanding those people's behaviors, their problems, their language, which was easy because we were already a part of it. And then using that to realize, oh, here's a thing that people already want but either can't get or the things they can get aren't satisfying their needs and things like that and using that to build businesses. And we looked around, and this is back in 2006, 2007, we looked around and realized that a lot of our creative friends were either miserable working for startups, miserable working for giant corporations, or going out and raising a bunch of venture capital to start their own company that they were going to be unhappy at. (laughs) Instead of taking what seemed to us very straightforward approach of using the skills that we had to create things and building businesses around that. And so we started sharing what we had learned and starting our businesses. People wanted to learn more. We realized that people could potentially learn how to do what we had done. We launched the very first version of, to call it a course at the time, wasn't even even that. The very first version of us teaching was actually a conference call with Amy talking about how they launched NOCO to paying customers on day one and people saying, well, we want more of that. And then Amy and I teamed up to turn that into a more full-fledged course. And over the last decade and, and change, have continued to grow and evolve that into our flagship course, which you mentioned 30 by 500, that sort of teaches that research methodology of how you go out into communities, understand people's challenges, understand their behavior, and use that to create both incredible products, but also educate them and create your content marketing and things like that, rather than having you know that blank page that you're staring at wondering, what am I supposed to write for people that makes them want my stuff? That's going to make an article that people are going to read and share. And, you know, Again, over time, adding smaller bricks to this empire. So we kind of did it backwards in a way. We had this massive course, 30 by 500, and then Amy wrote a little book called Just F***ing Ship about 
the skills that she uses to start and finish projects. Because lots of creative people have ideas for projects, they either struggle to start them, or they start them and then they get them to 80% and they die. And then most recently, as you mentioned, I wrote a book called The Tiny MBA, which is sort of a strange format for a book, is less really the instructions on how to run a business as an MBA might be. And more, I like to think of it as a thinking tool. It's meant to, it's more questions than answers. It's meant to give you better questions so that as you're in your business journey, it encourages you to sort of look around, analyze your environment, analyze what's going on in in your business experiences and make better choices there. So lots of little products and one very big product. The common theme across all of them is we help creators turn their skills to create into sustainable businesses with products, whether those products are software, educational products, or anything in between. So tell us what 30 by 500 stands for originally, what what the name comes from. Well, I will start by saying a piece of unsolicited business advice from somebody who made this mistake is don't name your product a math equation. It's very confusing. And I appreciate you actually calling it the right name. We've heard it called, you know, it's 500 by 30 or 50 by 300. No, it's 30 by 500. And the reason this course is called that is because we realized that people weren't doing the math to reverse engineer a financial goal. So again, you've got people that have got a, you know, a fancy programmer salary in San Francisco. And again, in 2008, 2009, that was, you know, $150,000, $180,000 was a very healthy salary. Now it's like $500,000, which is crazy. But when it was $180,000, people would say, well, I need to create a product that will make me $180,000, which is technically true, but also not a useful starting point. Because then they think about, well, what is that, the biggest thing I can create that will get me to that number. They don't think about the smaller pieces that go together. And so in sort of an offhanded example, we said, well, if you can create $30 worth of value a month for 500 people, just 500 people on the entire internet, that adds up to $180,000 a year gross. And people would look at us like we had just, you know, told them the whole history of the world in 30 seconds they'd never really thought about it that way. And so the underlying philosophy of 30 by 500 and ultimately stacking the bricks is taking those bigger things and breaking them down into smaller ones. Is a math equation the most effective way to communicate that? Probably not. But that underlying math is really what it comes down to. And you can you can move those numbers around. You know, the same $180,000 could be generated by, you know, it could be 30 customers paying $500 a month or 50 customers paying 300 like the, the exact numbers but the idea is that a small number of people and a relatively small dollar amount multiply against each other to create big results that's where things really start to get exciting before we dive into the uh, to the customer success part tell us more about uh, the book project uh, the tiny mba that you launched just lately that seems to be a big hit so what is the story behind that the Tiny MBA didn't actually start with the intent of creating a book. Uh, I've sat down to write a book before. I know you've written a book. Writing a book is challenging. I think everyone who has written a book will will tell you that. Um, some people will say it's the worst thing they've ever said to do. And I've struggled. You know, I think I love essay writing, but extending an essay to an, an entire book is is very very challenging by comparison. So I didn't start the Tiny MBA with the intent to write a book, and I think that's part of why it worked. It actually started as a thread on Twitter as part of a challenge to write 100 tweets, basically create a thread of 100 thoughts, ideas, strong opinions about a thing that you know a lot about. And I was like, I could do that. I've got strong opinions. And I was like, right, we're going to talk about building a business that lasts. So it wasn't just business generally. It was what happens in business over a long period of time, 10 years, 15 years. And what does a person who's been running a business for 10 or 15 years think that is different from someone who is in years zero through two, three, four, five, something like that. And so I wrote down these 100 things over the course of a couple of days. And the response was really incredible. 
and lots of the individual thoughts were getting shared and reshared and responses and people saying, oh, I've never heard it said that way or, oh, that's what that means or, oh, I never, I never really thought that would happen. And I realized that there was something, there was something there. And then it was, it was the holiday season. So we took some time off, spent time with family, went on vacation, came back and people were still interacting with this thread. And I was like, all right, we got to do something with this. And I said kind of offhandedly to one of the per- people who commented, they said, you know, this is more valuable in some ways than my MBA. And I was like, well, that's interesting. I don't know if I would ever like actually stack this up again. It's like a very different approach than than an actual MBA degree, but there's something there. And so I reached out to a friend who does who does design. She'd actually, uh, publishing design in particular, she had done a, a little zine project for me a few few months before and i said hey i have this kind of wacky idea to turn a hundred tweets into a book do you want to work on this with me <laughs> and can i pay you to, to figure out this problem and she was like that sounds so fun so hannah hannah litvin joined me to figure out how to package up tweets a so it didn't feel like you're reading a bunch of tweets but b to also make it this sort of physical artifact because that was the other thing is i realized that people kept coming to want to come back to the tweet so an ebook is great but then it sits in a folder on your computer or in your kindle and i kind of i wanted this to be a thing that could like sit on your desk or your bookshelf nearby where you could kind of read through it once really quickly but then you know when you're having a kind of one of those brain fuzz days where things just aren't going right or you're kind of stuck in your own head you can reach for the tiny mba open it up to random pages and read a couple of pages and just kind of like see how it makes you think. Cause that's really how the, the book ended up being most useful. And so we spent the first half of 2020 kind of figuring out that packaging and design and then launched in the summer to a lot of enthusiastic response and, and pretty quickly out of the gate had over a thousand pre-orders and, uh, once the book actually got in people's hands, we started getting some incredible you know, testimonials and feedback from people, some notes. And actually, it was really interesting to go through the process of getting early response from readers and figure out, I know what I wanted to accomplish with this book. Are people actually going to get it? Are people going to understand that this is a book that's you know most business books you sit down you read it you take some notes and then that book goes on the shelf and you recommend it to people if it was a good one but maybe there was like one lesson in there that you use someday and once in a while there's a book with one lesson that you use all the time i had a completely different approach where there was like a hundred things that you might use at any given time and would people use this almost as this magic eight ball reference kind of companion I almost think about it. somebody referred to it as like a business advisor that you can turn to anytime you want i was like what a, what a great way of describing what i intended the book to be but to get this in people's hands you know one of the benefits of software and digital products is a direct communication with people you can have you know in-app messaging and emails and all those kinds of things with a book once the book is in the person's hand like you don't know what's going to happen. There's there's not really a lot of infrastructure built around interacting with readers, especially with a print book. So that process was it was all very new. It was the first time doing a physical printed book for stacking the bricks. You know, we've done lots of ebooks and ebook type stuff, but doing doing a print book was a really fun special project. And you know, it's been was it been eight, seven or eight months since pre-launch started. And, you know, thousands of people have bought it. It's been shipped to every continent on the planet. And, you know, every, every week get emails from people that say that it's opened up something for them. They have a better understanding of a piece of business that, that wasn't clear, or they, they had wrong in their head, or in some cases they're like, thank you for the reminder of why I got into business in the first place. You know, I, I kind of got lost along the way. I got pulled into, you know, different thought processes around, you know, being the biggest instead of about creating great results for my customers and having them be customers for a really long time. You know, thinking on those those long view 
perspectives is really kind of where the book comes from. So seeing that people appreciate being reminded that the long view exists, it's not all just about like building it really big, really fast and then selling it to Google or, or some private equity firm, but that you can, you can build things to last is really the message that I wanted to remind the, the business readers with. And yeah, it was a highlight of 2020 and 2020 was kind of a roller coaster of a year. So for a book launch to be, you know, one of the best parts is something I'm really proud to be able to say. I love the way you smoothly transitioned into like ensuring that people have success with your book, because that's one of the things we, we're going to talk about today. That's why we're here. Uh, and and I just interviewed Rob Fitzpatrick yesterday for uh, UI Breakfast, and he's running a project that has both community and a book and and software that allows for beta reading and then tracking reader engagement using, you know, analytics and whatever digital things can allow us for. But that's an exception. Let's not talk about that because <laughs> it's not like you can you know, deliver a PDF and hope that you're going to have engagement stats about it. That's, that's such a big challenge. Well, one thing, it's a benefit because you're not responsible for, for what happens. <laughs> I know compared to SaaS, like you don't have to ensure the success. However, it's typically lovely to have success. So based on what products you've made, the courses, the books, uh, what can we do as publishers, producers to ensure success with the book? Yeah, I think, I mean, what you're just describing with Rob's product, and it's is a beautiful example of like, if you're not really immersed in the author and publishing world, there's no way you could really understand the nuance of the problems that Rob is solving. Like Rob really understands them. And it's not just because they're his problem, but because he's intensely connected to the author space as well. But, you know, I can give you another example from the 30 by 500 world where, you know, I mentioned that 30 by 500 started as a phone call. And maybe I can show to like two points on a line for an info product over a literally 10-year history and the importance and the process of where feedback fit in. So 30 by 500 started as literally a phone call, which is about like the highest resolution of interactions you can get with a customer because it's practically live. I mean, it is live. They're listening to you, but you can get immediate feedback and people can ask questions and people can ask for clarification and all those kinds of things. At the other end of the spectrum, the way 30 by 500 exists today is as a, I think what people think of when they think of an online course, which is largely pre-recorded videos, written lessons, PDFs, workbooks, all those kinds of things. And it's huge. But I think what people miss is all of the versions that existed in between. And the key in every single version of 30 by 500 along that progression was the value of having that feedback loop with not just our customers, but with our students, right? It's one thing to sell something, but I think what we're talking about, especially in the SaaS world, is you have that ongoing relationship. It's their success is not finishing the book or finishing the course. It's implementing what they learned. That's what creates great results. It's what gets people talking about the book as valuable to them, which creates word of mouth, testimonials, and ongoing sales. I think that's the bridge between you know, info products and software. But like software, I think info products don't have that feedback loop built in. You launch it, and unless you've got something designed for uh, unless you've got a space that's specifically designed for customers to reach out to you when they want to reach out to you, you end up in this kind of vacuum of silence. So when people create courses and their first version of their course is a bunch of pre-recorded videos, and I ask, you know, have you taught this live even once? And they say no. I say, how are you going to know if the lessons are connecting with your students? How are you going to know if they are getting stuck or if they are implementing what you've learned? How are you going to see them learn? Especially online, we have this, again, this sort of vacuum of, of space. And they're like, oh, shoot, I, I don't, I, I was just going to ask for feedback. And you know, as well as I do, Jane, is asking for feedback is sometimes like shouting into the void as well. You can send out really well-written surveys, but people aren't going to answer your feedback just because you asked for it. You need to kind of catch them at the right time when they're feeling it, when they're experiencing it. And 
And the reality is, is I think with a course or a book, that's, that's really, really difficult. You have to do it basically during or right after. So with 30 by 500, that was, you know, we were teaching live boot camps, two day events where we could watch people succeed and struggle in real time. And we had it all happening in a chat room. So we actually had the transcript. So we could not just see that people were struggling or succeeding. We could see the language they were using around the emotions they had when they finally got it, when they got with the light bulb moment. We could also see the language and emotions around what they were scared of, what they were frustrated with, why they weren't taking action. And we were able to take all of those chat transcripts and actually we worked with a research assistant to go through and code that language and pull that out and use that to determine, okay, the next version of the course, we need to address those problems before they run into those problems. Basically, lets us anticipate that, hey, when you try this the first time, there's a good chance that it's not going to go the way you expect. It might even look like this. And then it looks like that for them. And they go, how did you know that was going to happen? And I go, well, because we've watched a thousand people before you run into that issue. It's at the point where I can't, like, I can change the material, but in some, in some cases, like, it's not about a missing feature, right? It's not about a missing lesson. It's about knowing that if people are trying to do something that is genuinely difficult, but important, there are emotional barriers that no feature can fix and that a human needs to be there to communicate with them and say, you're probably struggling with this. And if you are, you're not alone. It's okay. Here's what you can do. Here are a couple of options you can choose. Here's what other people chose and found success like you're looking to find. You can't do all of that if you don't have that early feedback loop. So I think when it comes to info products, people often think about, you know, I buy a book and that's it. Or if I'm on the seller side, people buy my book and I hope I get a testimonial. I hope they tweet about it. I hope they share it on LinkedIn, whatever it might be. And I feel like it's it comes from, frankly, a very selfish place of wanting people to talk about your book. Whereas our goal is always to get people to talk about their achievements, get people to talk about what they did while using a thing that we made. And when that's the North Star, when that's the goal, I kind of think everything else kind of gets to shape around it. And it forces us to think about what can we do after somebody buys a book, buys a course to keep those lines of communication open and make it clear when you're stuck I know you're not used to writing the author of a book and getting a response. The tiny MBA, maybe one of the most surprising things is people tweeting at me or tweeting about, you know, they'll take a picture of one of their favorite pages, they'll tweet it and I'll respond and ask them like, you know, what did you like about that? Or like, tell me the story about why that resonated. And they're like, I've never had an author respond to me. And I'm like, what? How? how? I mean, I get how, but that's, if that feels like, to me, and I feel like, you know, Rob probably would say the same thing about his books. Like, to me, that's the whole point. And I, I want, I don't just want somebody to read it. I want them to put it into action. And I feel like once you've got that North Star, it is about building systems and having the right tools to support that. And sometimes those tools don't exist off the shelf and you kind of got to hack things together because I think a lot of info product people just think about everything up until the moment of purchase. They don't think about the follow through. But if they did, A, I can say from personal experience, it's extremely gratifying compared to the vacuum of silence. You know, it's nice to see the sales numbers tick up, but to hear from people is so much better. I mean, obviously you want both, but <laughs> but also, you know, that's where that fabled word of mouth comes from. It's not just people saying, this thing is cool. It's people saying, this thing was impactful for me subtext, it could be impactful for you too. You should get a copy yourself. This is really great that we talk about feedback a lot. And, you know, info products are the most silenced medium in the world. It's true. Uh, so what kind of bridges can you create and communication channels if the traditional route is all about, you know, shipping and forgetting? And we don't have any, well, there probably are some tools for authors, but they're not widely known. It's still the same ship and forget experience. What can we do to improve? So 
we're talking about a book, there's two things that come to mind. One of the first things, and this is really simple, and I'm surprised that it's not done more often. I think we originally heard this idea from Kathy Sierra, who is a well-known educator, author, a big influence for Amy and I. Our, our work wouldn't exist the way it works without Kathy. And the idea is in the book itself, almost like treat the book the same way you treat a really great article for content marketing and have a content upgrade in it. And so the way we, because, because when you've got a, either a physical book or a Kindle book, you don't, you can't really click links in the same way. So the technique is, is you put an email address and a call to action in the book itself that says, if this was helpful, I've got more for you. Send an email to this address and get this additional thing you know, a, a workbook, a cheat sheet, a guide, an email course, what like the same kind of stuff that you'd put at the end of an epic article that would be used for content marketing for a SaaS, you can do that with a book. And it feels kind of inverted because it's, again, after the sale. But again, why does that work for content marketing? Because once somebody got something valuable from you, they want more. And so you can use that same sort of chain of psychology and incentives. When somebody read a book, they're like, that was awesome. Of course I want more. So near the end of the tiny MBA, I essentially asked people like, are you committed to the long game of business? If so, I've got some more goodies for you. Shoot an email to this email address. I've got a special email address for that. That does go to an inbox. So I see all of those, but it's also hooked up to a Zapier integration that responds automatically with a link to a couple of PDFs, a couple of extra goodies. And I can build on that. I can expand it over time. Basically builds a little sub email list just of people not only who bought the product but got to that call to action and said that was awesome i want more so that becomes like a, a very very powerful subset of your readers and everyone who writes in wanting those goodies i say you know they're they're on the way by the way you know any specific pages of the book that connected with you, that resonated with you, that were especially helpful? And is there a story behind that? And I get the coolest stuff back. People tell me all kinds of great things. And again, it's I'm not fishing for testimonials. I genuinely am interested in what the book kind of caused them to reflect on because of, and, and to a degree, that's because of the way the book is built. The book isn't telling them stories. It's giving them prompts and questions that are going to make them think about their own stories. So I want those stories, maybe for a future version of the book, who knows, or a compendium that goes along with it. But having that, that system in place that gives people an incentive, I think that's a big part of what's missing from a lot of feedback loops is is people say, you know, fill out this feedback form that's, by the way, all about me. It's all, all about what I want. And if you fill it out, you're entered into a contest to get an Amazon gift card or you get it. Like it's a, it's a very kind of, I don't want to say it's a thoughtless, but it's, it, it's, a, it's a kind of thoughtless incentive. It's not connected in any way. It's pure, here's $50, here's $10, here's $100, depending on what the value of that feedback is to you. Instead of something that's considered and feels personal and feels relevant to the reader or the buyer's experience. So the conversion rate's higher, but more importantly, it invites the rest of that dialogue, which for me is really what it's all about. Let's talk about the courses. And they typically cost more than books and they encourage more engagement. And you also, as a creator, you have more resources to provide, you know, a more personalized experience. Yeah. And you have like a dozen years of uh, of practice with that. So how has that evolved over time with 3500? What have you done to ensure success of your students? Yeah. So like I said before, you can think about the experience as very front-loaded, both on the, the timeline of our experience. You know, the early days, it was direct interaction. So it was you know, direct interaction on a phone call, there was an earlier version of the course we ran for about two years that was all over an email list. So a couple of days a week, we were sending out new lessons on a Google group. This is not a great way to deliver a course, by the way. But again, this courseware space also wasn't very good. But because it was being delivered over a Google group, we'd send out a lesson and encourage response and dialogue in the replies. The upside to that was we got 
we got to hear from people and we got to see where people got stuck sometimes because they would respond with something different than what we expected or you know clearly the way we asked the question wasn't useful i feel like that's a lot of the learning is realizing that the question you're asking is a not the right question but you need to see people respond to it or struggle to respond to it to figure out what the right question is but the other flip side of that was because everybody could see everybody else's responses it created the sense of if you got busy or you weren't staying on schedule, you got behind. And I'm doing air quotes for the listener you can't see around behind because there's truth is, is like there's no getting behind in a course, even if there's other students in the course. Like you move along at the pace that you're moving along. And then when you're done with the thing you're doing, you move forward. But when you're in a group learning setting in particular, I think something that people don't necessarily think about when they attach a community to a course is that you get people comparing themselves to each other and forgetting that everyone's moving at their own pace. And that's not only okay, it's by design. And so we had to both adjust the format for delivery, get out of the Google group, but also really start building in reinforcements to remind people that you're in a group setting, but your results are yours alone. And so instead of comparing yourself to others, observe others with the intention of learning, right? Don't learn and compare yourself to them. Learn and say, well, or watch and say, what can I take away from watching that other person succeed or struggle? And so that requires a fair bit of framing. And I don't think we would have come up with that, that realization if we hadn't had that sort of email list style back and forth. I think the bootcamp was the most powerful format for feedback because it was highly structured, short, relatively short. It was two compressed days. And we were on this kind of like railroad tracks of a schedule to hit a certain number of lessons. You know, everything was kind of like timed out to the minute over the course of two six-hour days. And what we saw while teaching the boot camp, I think, was this really interesting experience where I'd say we had taught the boot camp five or six times. We made some tweaks. We fixed some things. And then once we fixed some things, we realized that the way my favorite way to describe it is it became the same script with different actors. Where every boot camp, there would be somebody who was super confident. There would be somebody who was enthusiastic about everything that they were learning. There was somebody who was really anxious. There was somebody who wouldn't listen to any advice. And like all these different kind of character archetypes would show up in a class of roughly 30. I just never knew who was going to be who. And once you started realizing that, I was like, oh, this happens in every learning environment. All these archetypes exist. They're just invisible. So what really kind of made sense was like, okay, as we're building the done on your own pace, on your own time, pre-recorded videos, self-guided lessons, all those kinds of things, version of the course, we need to anticipate all of those character archetypes all in one course. And, which is a really interesting design challenge. But again, one of those things that I think people build courses and educational products with the information in mind rather than the learner in mind. And once I realized the different kinds of personalities and psychologies that were signing up for this course that wasn't, you know, and maybe this is a little bit different for something that is highly regimented and technical versus something that business has got lots of things that are kind of psychological and squishy. But I don't think that a highly technical course is completely absent of those things either, you know? So I think spending time teaching live in whatever format is hands down the most valuable thing that somebody can do who intends to create something that people can then buy off the shelf later. That the time for money ratio will not feel good at the beginning, right? Because you're investing a lot of time. But realize that you could be spending that time instead of investing it in lots of you know, recording videos, editing them and all these kinds of things, putting out a perfect product and then wondering why isn't it working? Why are people not implementing it the way I expected them to? And then ultimately, if they're not succeeding, 
the word of mouth is not going to spread. Or when it does spread, people are going to be like, yeah, it was, you know, it was fine, but I got stuck here or it kind of missed the mark over here. We have incredible reviews on, uh, on 30 by 500, even from people who don't implement it. People who say like, I got pulled off in other life directions. I made other choices, but this is still one of the best courses I've ever taken. Even if I didn't implement it, it's the best course I've ever taken. The subtext is almost always because they really thought about me as a learner. And I think that's a lesson that applies to every kind of business, every kind of product. When the user feels like you thought about them, you can get away with rough edges and missing features and stuff that's not done or not ready because the user believes, because they can see, they have to see it through your actions, that you are thinking about them. Right? It doesn't mean you don't need to apologize for those rough edges, but if you actually take the time to show that you have taken the time to understand them, understand their challenges, uh, it, it opens up everything from, like I said, that word of mouth to, again, the freedom to get a little experimental or ship things before, you know, the title of this podcast, better done than perfect. There's stuff that we ship to this audience that is super not done, but we'll show them because, and we'll give it to them and they'll say, this is great. And it's great, even though it's not done, because they know we made it for them. They know we made it based on the problems that we saw. They go, it's like you read my mind. Now, I had this happen just the other week. We, we released a new workbook around a part of the sales safari process, which is sort of a cornerstone of 30 by 500, the research part. And people often say, well, how do I organize all the information and data that comes out of 30? This is probably like the most common question that we had not fully answered in a lesson in a very long time. People get sales safari like, ah, oh, it's so great. Like I've got these piles of notes. What do I do? Well, I'm like, what do you mean? What do you do? And they go, well, I want to organize the notes. And I go, well, why? And they go, because there's piles of notes. And I go, but organizing them is not the point. So like, you're taking notes to gather insights, not to organize them into neat little piles. In fact, the messiness is kind of what allows insights to emerge. And that's a very hard thing for, you know, a certain category of personality to, to, to really wrap their head around. And so Amy created this really awesome workbook around a piece of the process that we, we call building a detective board, which is sort of like that, you know, when you watch it in a movie or a crime drama where they've got that board up on the wall with, you know, the pictures of all the criminals and the red twine between all the pins. It's like that, but for your customer research. And we had a guy who was asking all kinds of questions, a relatively new student, and I said, hey, we're working on a, a new guide. Take a look at this. And he goes, oh, this answers all my questions and a bunch I didn't even know I had. And that's the response that I want, right? And you can't get that unless you, to a degree, watch people struggle long enough and have that open dialogue and feedback loop to, to gather along the way. As providers of the course, I know you have a one-on-one -on -one support that you provide so, and I imagine that was not in place from day one and that kind of grew. So how did that emerge? And I know you also use it as a sort of loop for your customers to share their successes as part of your marketing strategy. So how does that work? Yeah. So and the truth is, is we've always had one-on-one -on -one support. We, we generally push people into the community channels to ask questions, not to have other people answer them for us. Although nowadays that that is m more common, people there are a good number of people in our student community who have been through the process enough to give really good constructive. You know, again, they're not doing our customer support for us, but they can give like, "Hey, here's what I did," kind of advice. And people get really stuck. Um, we push people to the public channels specifically because anytime somebody is struggling with a question, the odds of them being the only one is essentially zero. So by answering their question in public, it scales to answer that question or get additional follow-on questions from other students. So the very first thing that we'll do is if someone's comfortable, we don't force people to, and we do get messages from people say, I'm not comfortable asking these questions in a public channel. Totally understood. That's fine. But if people are, are willing to, we encourage them to do it there because it allows us to answer in public, which helps the silent lurkers who didn't ask the question see us answer and it kind of helps stuff click in their head or maybe they have a follow-on question that happens a lot but even when 
the one-on-one support happens in private over email. And this is something that we do to support our students. And people are often surprised that we do this to support people that are not our students. People just write in looking for advice. And that is a uh, a blessing and a curse that comes with being, uh, you know, a relatively visible and relatively successful person on the internet for anything is people then come to you wanting to know advice. The trouble with that is if you do that, you could do that all day long and never get anything else done. And you're answering all of these emails and shooting them off into the void. And you know, as well as I do, Jane, that you can give great advice and 99% of it will never get implemented, which hurts in my heart, but it's true. So a mental model that I came up with was I will give free advice within bounds of reason to, if I, first of all, if I believe I've got something useful to say, I don't, like, sometimes I'm like, I don't have anything useful to give you. And that's like, sorry. Or sometimes I'll recommend another book or podcast or resource, whatever it is. But for when I do have a useful answer, I ask myself, is this person's question so specific that it's just them? Or is this something that other people either have asked? Have I answered it before? Have I answered things like it before? Or if I'm answering it for the first time, is it reasonable to believe that other people would have a similar or the same question? And if so, can I answer this in a way so that as I'm responding to the email, I'm essentially writing the rough draft for a blog post, for an article, for an essay, for something that can be public facing. And as you browse through stackinthebricks.com, and I have another site that I run for my co-working work where it's articles more geared for towards co-working operators and community managers. I'd say the vast majority of what's on them, at least in the last few years, didn't start as me going, I'm going to write an article about X. It started as somebody writing me an email with a question, me writing the best answer I can write with the amount of time and energy that I have, responding, and then copy-pasting my response into a text editor for a later day. And then now I have a, I use a program called Bear. It's like one of these, you know, all in one note taking apps. I have a, a tag in Bear that is basically, you know, it's emails. It's also like I'm hanging out on indie hackers and I'm answering people's questions or interacting in the comments. If I write a really good comment, that goes into Bear essentially as drafts. And then when I'm sitting down to write an article, instead of, you know, going, what am I going to write about today? I go to my drafts and I skim through and I go, this looks like an interesting one that I could flesh out. I grab the email that I wrote and then I edit it. I write an introduction that sets the context for someone who isn't, you know, someone on the random on the internet who isn't the person who wrote the original email. And I basically never have to think about what am I going to write for content marketing because the people that write in with questions, whether they're our students or random strangers on the internet, give like I can basically just answer questions all day long. It's kind of like an um, like a Dear Abby advice column, but not especially. A, it doesn't say that explicitly. Our best content marketing ends up appearing to the reader as personalized advice written for them. Because in fact, it was personalized advice written for somebody else who's a lot like them, which means that they're not only getting good advice, but it's coming across in a way that's very different from a lot of articles that try and like round up best practices or tell you how to do a thing in that very sort of authoritative thought leadery kind of way, which just, I, I mean, is it sprinkled throughout our stuff? Of course it is. But the stuff that really I love to write and the stuff that I think connects the most is stuff that feels like some feels like that business advisor that you know that you you can keep in your pocket. So articles, essays, I mean to a degree that's how the tiny MBA, that's how those were those 100 tweets that went into the tiny MBA came from. Those 100 tweets were me thinking about all the questions that people ask me and the answers that I've given over and over and over and over and over and over and over. And over. Or in some cases the answers to questions that I wished people had asked, but don't because they're in the wrong mindset because they're thinking short-term instead of long-term and things like that. So it's, it's another feedback loop. Uh, and for me, it's a, it's a way of sort of scaling reader or customer success because that time invested in helping one person, once it's written down or recorded in some way, can be turned into an asset that can be shared and revisited over and over, over however many 
months or years it's on the internet. We've got stuff that's been on the internet for 15 years that, you know, I, maybe it's been edited and updated for context. Uh, things have changed, but ultimately the question that the person asked, the struggle the person was facing is evergreen. That's why so much of our content is not, it's not based on here's, you know, the trend of the week or the month or this specific piece of software or tool. It's more of like, what's the root problem? Those core human emotional things is really at the heart of, of most of the stuff we create. And that comes from people being willing to open up and, and share those things with us. So one last question for today, and we're definitely running out of time, but it's an important one. Info products are very often complementary to SaaS. And uh, some great examples from the past include, I don't know, for example, Craig Hewitt, who runs Castos, he has uh, written a book about podcasting. And um, Nathan Barry, in their early days of ConvertKit, they had ConvertKit Academy, which I assume was not a spectacular success because then they shut it down. So there are some great examples. Writing a book is is more of a simple one, but such as a ConvertKit Academy was a almost a prerequisite for you know getting started with software. What are your thoughts? Maybe you have other great examples um, of how founders can leverage courses and books in their practice. One of the the first thing that comes to mind. So the the ConvertKit Academy example is really really interesting, and I think I don't want to speak for Nathan, but I think. The origins of that came from before Nathan built a software. He did very well selling info products. And so the experiment there was, can I sell software the same way I sold info products? And so I'm pretty sure the way it was working was you could obviously buy the software or you could buy a package that was a course that came with six months of the software uh, as part of the price. The idea being it's sort of like extended onboarding. Right, people are basically paying for their onboarding, and I have a hunch that paying for your onboarding is probably part of why it didn't work out. But I think a great example of an info product that creates lead generation for software, even though it's technically two different businesses related to ConvertKit, is you've got Brennan Dunn has his Mastering ConvertKit course has been a, has because of this how much work Brennan Brennan's a great example of somebody who really puts customer success in educational products forward um, and the reciprocity between Brennan who's a student of mine and Amy's um, like he's taught us a lot we've taught him a lot we go back and forth all the time Brennan is probably one of the most master executors of customer success in info products that I can think of mastering convert kit absolutely generates sales for ConvertKit. You would think it's the thing that people buy ConvertKit and they're like, I'm stuck, I need help. No, 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 it's the other way around. Mastering ConvertKit doesn't sell, in spite of the title, it doesn't sell, here's how to master ConvertKit. It sells a bunch of advanced business techniques around email automation that a business owner who wants those outcomes will buy, they'll watch it and they'll go, okay, I definitely need this tool in my business. I think a, a more common example and, and perhaps, you know, a less, again, that's like, that's expert level. That's God tier stuff. I think another really great way to think about this is, you know, a book to your point can be used as a way to educate a reader on a topic to earn trust to help them understand your expertise and authority. But maybe most importantly, and I think a piece that's missing, is make them a better customer for the product. So I'm going to use Brennan as an example because it's coming to mind right now. Brennan's first info product was Double Your Freelancing Rate. It was a very short ebook on value-based pricing and raising your prices through value-based pricing. There's a story that we tell that is true about Brennan creating that product as part of a challenge to be able to pre-sell the book, make money, and go to a conference in Ireland with Amy and Thomas. That's all true. It was something they talked about, but Brennan wanted to go to the conference. He had some financial obligations. He couldn't go, but he basically went to his wife and said, if I make money with this book, can I go? And she's like, yeah, sure, whatever. Perhaps not thinking that he could. And then he did. That's all true. But the 
part that's told less often is the reason double your freelancing rate was not just successful, but made sense in the business stack. And like why Brennan knew that book would make sense to its readers, why that book was so customer success centric is because he had a software as a service before that, that was hard to grow and slow to grow, as you know, with software. And it was for freelancers and small agencies. And his most common cancellation reason for PlanScope, this project management tool, was went out of business, wasn't making enough money. And so as a business owner, Brennan goes, well, you just need to learn how to charge more and then you won't go out of business or you won't not have enough money for a, a pro-end tool. And so he said, well, if I can teach my prospective customers a piece of business that is a limitation to them using my software – they improve their business whether or not they buy the software, but the odds of them buying the software and using the software and being successful with the software get so much greater. So I think about this. Um, there's another great example. I was talking with somebody who does who does salary negotiation. They're a salary negotiation coach, and their main business is one-on-one coaching. And it's it's high-end, it's for people, you know, you know mid six figure salaries for you know big tech engineering companies and things like that but the way the ways approached the the marketing the educational content both the free content and the paid educational material is with the mindset of creating a better customer and most recently the the strategy that we've been talking about was Instead of focusing just on the salary negotiation, how could he get involved in other parts of the hiring pipeline? Maybe not necessarily create new products, but support other people who create products. So in the context of hiring, you know, what comes before salary negotiation? Well, you got to get an interview or you have to do really well on an interview. And so there's an entire industry of interview preparation, interview training, interview coaching, practice interviews and stuff like that. That happens before you're even doing salary negotiation. And so I said, if you want better customers for salary negotiation, you can get involved in another part of the life cycle, so to speak, of that customer that comes before it. Help another, maybe again, you don't have to be the one to teach it, but if you're there while someone else is teaching it, or you're assisting, or you're getting people's minds prepped for once you Here's what you can do during the interview to set yourself up for a successful salary negotiation later. Here are the things that you can bring up, the questions you can ask, the answers you can be ready with so that when the time comes to negotiate your offer, you're better positioned. It's all about do, and if you do that essentially for free or with lower cost educational material that scales really well. When they do get an offer and they're thinking about negotiating their salary, well, who's the first person they're going to think of talking to? It's you. You're one choice that they have, right? So, of course, they're going to go with you. So, I think, again, this comes back to thinking – a lot of people think about the moment that a sale happens and everything you need to do to get that sale to happen. I suggest that there's a lot that can be done after that moment, and I think that's a lot of what we've talked about today, but also – what can you do before the moment of sale that doesn't feel like trying to close a deal, but instead feels like preparing the customer to be a better customer? What, what do your existing customers struggle with? And what, could, what if they learned it before they actually purchased would make them a better customer, would make them, you know, would increase customer lifetime value? And that, like when you start thinking customer lifetime value type metrics, you realize, oh, an investment in a ebook or an ebook that we give away for free even, if it's designed around making that person more successful before they're even a customer, well, who are the best customers? The people who are already successful because they're the lowest impact, they have the lowest impact on support and they're the least likely to cancel, right? Those are the best customers for something like a software as a service. So using info products to build yourself a better customer. And I would say, if if people have not read the book Badass by Kathy Sierra, this is and I, I consider this the 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 primer on how to think about customer success before, during, and after purchase is like the must read. It's a very unique book. It's a very powerful book and, and a very powerful way of, of thinking about the person on the other side.
When I was asking a question, I actually forgot that I was subject to one of things like this. And in 2015, I wrote a book called uh, Fundamental UI Design for Envision. And Envision is design software. So to give clarity on how this worked, they were looking for, you know, sort of evangelists or designers, like young, promising people who would write a book for a relatively reasonable slash small cash compensation. But they also provided me with a great platform for my personal career growth. So it was a giant boost to my audience and such. And it was a wonderful trade. So you don't have to write it yourself as the founder. You can absolutely find people who would be interested in doing that in exchange for the platform or for cash or for both. And uh, there are so many ways. And, you know, Intercom, for example, was famous for their books and probably many other platforms as well. Yep. Yep, absolutely. Alex, thanks so much for sharing your wisdom today. We should probably be talking for another hour, but we can. (laughs) (laughs) One last couple pieces of advice for people who do info products and books and SaaS. One do and one don't when it comes to customer success. Ooh, that's good. Well, I got to do and a don't. (laughs) Build in the feedback loop and offer a real incentive. Don't just say, here's how you contact me. Give your readers, your students, something valuable that encourages them to then talk about their experience. I think borrowing that idea of, you know, a lead magnet or a content upgrade from the marketing world and working that directly into info products is a massively underutilized opportunity to create that feedback loop for off-the-shelf products. Bonus, definitely do. If you're creating courses, teach them live at least once before you're doing any sort of pre-recorded. And another sub-bonus do is I think a lot of times people think, all right, well, then I've got to go into you know massive production. I've encouraged people to record a live workshop, You know, teach a one-hour workshop, record it live, and just sell the live recording maybe for a little bit less than the live attendance, include the Q&A and all that stuff. Um, I have a bunch of folks that have written in asking for how to do this. I've suggested that and they've all not believed me when I said that people would pay full price for the recording. They do it and it works. You still have to do the work to market and sell it, but um, teaching live, even if it's not your thing, is going to make you better at the thing you're trying to do. A don't. Maybe the flip side of that is don't <laughs> create a pre-recorded video course or a book without some sort of feedback loop first. I would say the best don't is don't expect your customers to do the work for you. You are here in service of them. And I think where people get really, really mixed up in things like customer success and customer feedback is they take talking with my customers as this kind of extractive process. I'm trying to get knowledge, information, insights out of them. And frankly, I think it's kind of a disrespectful way to approach your customers. I think you have to offer more and you have to offer more in a way that gets you both what you want. It gets them some additional insights, some additional support, some additional tools, techniques, whatever it may be, and gets you a bit closer to their lived experience. But asking people to give that up for free is, I frankly, I think it's kind of rude. I think it happens a lot. And, you know, people, you know, shotgun spray to to their customers, you know, trying to play a numbers game. And I, I suppose people do it because to a degree it works. But I, I think it's the difference between, you know, going wide and going deep. The reason our stuff is good is because I would rather go deep than wide when it comes to research insights. Um, And at the heart of it, don't forget that this is all part of a trust building and relationship process. If you get caught up in the mechanics of it and forget that there's a human on the other side and that your goal above all should be to earn their trust, maybe that's it is like, if you are going into things with the ultimate goal of earning somebody's trust, earning, not getting, earning, that puts you in a position like, what can I offer? What can I do that shows them that I I value their time, I value their effort, and not just that I want to listen, but I want to make sure that if they're stuck, 
or if they're confused, if they have questions, or if they're excited and achieving success that I actually want to hear from them. People don't think about us, the people selling products, nearly as much as we'd like to believe they do. They're thinking about themselves. And that's okay. You know, that's that's the way all of us go, kind of move through this world. So I think recognizing that and going in and going, how can I help you do what you're trying to do is a, such a powerful reframing around what's your biggest struggle today? What's your biggest struggle today is clearly fishing for what can I help you do versus, you know, how's your day going? I don't know. There's a lot, there's a lot of ways to skin that cat, but I think remem- remembering that you're approaching it from a perspective of service, not extraction, I think is really key. I love that. Well, thanks so much, Alex. Where can people find you online and all the products we've been talking about? Sure. So in terms of interaction, if you're on Twitter, that's my my uh, my local watering hole of the internet of choice. Full name, Alex Hillman on Twitter. Say hi there. Stackingthebricks.com is the home that Amy Hoy and I have set up on the internet. Tons of articles, podcasts, videos, you know, tons and tons of stuff for you to read and enjoy, as well as links to our educational products. And we talked a bit about the Tiny MBA. That is at tiny.mba. And we actually set up a discount code for listeners of the show, uh, BDTP, better done than perfect. Uh, BDTP20 will get you 20% off the paperback or the ebook version. Uh, And with the paperback, we do ship worldwide. So you can get that shipped to wherever you are. Thanks so much, Alex, and good luck with, uh, with all your endeavors in 2021. Thank you. You too, Jane. Thank you for having me. Thanks for listening. If you found the episode useful, please spread the word about this new show on Twitter, mentioning UserList, or leave us a review on iTunes. <laughs>